Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a time to fellowship with members of our heavenly family, and for a day to rejoice in the glory that is yours alone. Father, we pray so very earnestly for the lost in this world, that their eyes be open to truth about their condition, that they realize in true humility that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and not just any Savior, the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray also, Father, for those of the faith who are hurting right now, that their spirits be lifted up and that they continue to cry out to you alone, Father, through the healing ministry of the Holy Spirit and in the name of your precious Son. Father, also please make this message holy, a good work to your glory. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this message title, The Difficult Quote-Unquote Passages, I have that in quotations because uh, from a purely godly perspective, uh, no passage of Scripture is really difficult, uh, at least not from God's perspective. And so we are just doing due diligence on certain topics at this point after 117-part series on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, uh, just some sort of filler-type work. And one area that um, came up time and again, obviously, was believing. That's that Greek word, uh, pistouo. Uh, which is the same from the same root as faith, which is pistis. So these things are connected in the Bible. However, as the Spirit's been teaching us, uh, we shouldn't hang our hats on word studies or phrase studies, etc., especially not in the English. Uh, so with that said, this is part two. I want to start with um, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who is certainly uh, one of the you know, so-called great preachers uh, of yesteryear, uh, back in the 1800s, he said this, on salvation, and just sit back, I've got a lengthy quote, I'm just going to put part of his quote up here on the board uh, to highlight certain things. So he says, Christ Jesus did not come in order that you might continue in sin and escape the penalty of it. He did not come to prevent the disease being mortal, but to take the disease itself away. Many people think that when we preach salvation, we mean salvation from going to hell. We do not mean only that, but we mean a great deal more. We preach salvation from sin. We say that Christ is able to save a man. And we mean by that that He is able to save him from sin and to make him holy, to make him a new man. No person has any right to say, quote, I am saved while he continues in sin as he did before. How can you be saved from sin while you are living in it? A man that is drowning cannot say he is saved from the water while he is sinking in it. A man that is frostbitten cannot say with any truth that he is saved from the cold while he is stiffened in the wintry blast. There are some who seem willing to accept Christ as Savior who will not receive Him as Lord. 
they will not often state the case quite as plainly as that, but as actions speak more plainly than words, that is what their conduct practically says. How sad it is that some talk about their faith in Christ, yet their faith is not proved by their works. Some even speak as if they understood what we mean by the covenant of grace, yet alas, there is no good evidence of grace in their lives, but very clear proof of sin, not grace abounding. I cannot conceive it possible for anyone truly to receive Christ as Savior and yet not to receive Him as Lord. One of the first instincts of a redeemed soul is to fall at the feet of the Savior and gratefully and adoringly to cry, Blessed Master, brought or bought with Thy precious blood, I own that I am Thine, Thine only, Thine holy, Thine forever. Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? It is not possible for us to accept Christ as our Savior unless He also becomes our King. For a very large part of salvation consists in our being saved from sin's dominion over us. And up here on the board, the only way in which we can be delivered from the mastery of Satan is by becoming subject to the mastery of Christ. If it were possible for sin to be forgiven, and yet for the sinner to live just as he lived before, he would not really be saved. Again, that's Charles Spurgeon, uh, a wonderful preacher uh, of the Word of God from back in the 1800s. This morning's message, while focused on the concept of believing in the Bible, has another undertone to it. Namely, be careful what you believe. So there's an undertone here. We're going to study out, flesh out some of the details on believing in the Bible, but the undertone is a practical one. Be careful what you believe. And more specifically, be careful that you don't reject truth because you don't want to believe it. A lot of people are faced with truth. They reject it because, frankly, they don't want to believe it. Be careful that's not you. If truth is a stumbling block to you, it means your flesh is dominating you, which is the same disease we read about in the Bible with those who reject their Messiah. I woke up yesterday morning thinking about the tact that the Spirit's been taking with this church for quite some time now. And it's not meant to be an offensive tact, so to speak. The Spirit's not trying to necessarily offend you believers, assuming you're believers. So it's not meant to be an offensive tact, so to speak. It's actually a defensive one in the sense that we are defending the gospel from without. To think of our lessons this last year as offensive somehow, other than to unbelievers, of course, is to misunderstand the Spirit's intention. Go to Romans 9.30. Romans 9.30. So just reflecting on our curriculum as of late, I just don't want anyone to think that 
the lessons are meant to be offensive. They're really just defensive in the sense that we're trying to protect the gospel from without. The gospel has always been under attack. There is nothing in the history of mankind that has suffered more attack than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Everything in this world, I was talking to my mom before everybody got here this morning, everything in this world is all distraction. It's all meant to distract us from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 9.30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Obviously, the rock is Christ himself and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Up here on the board, this rock of offense. Jesus Christ, the rock, is only offensive to those, I should say offensive, offensive to those who reject him. Jesus Christ, the rock, is only offensive to those who reject Him. To the rest, He is Lord and Savior. If a believer speaks of Him and others are offended, the believer ought not shrink away or seek approval some other way, for he does not have the right to misrepresent the Sovereign Lord. So, our lessons like everything else, must be taken in context, lest we misconstrue the Spirit's cause for giving them. I don't want you to understand these lessons to be offensive, except to the, those who reject truth, of course. You ought to be looking at them as this congregation taking a stance on behalf of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So I say again, our lessons, though offensive to those who reject Christ, the person, are really more defensive in nature. What the Spirit's really doing is protecting the church, capital C, from being infected by false doctrine, especially concerning the gospel. He's not trying to offend the sensibilities of believers, although that happens. Rather, his intent is to remind us all that there are a lot of people that go to church and even call themselves, quote, Christians that aren't even saved. This is what he's saying. This is the tact that he's, that he's taking with us. He's saying there's a lot of people in the churches that aren't even saved. Oh, sure, they say they want a Savior because to them it's like, oh, I hedge my bet. If I just say I believe, I get to go to heaven. But I don't want a Lord in their life the evidence of faith is not there at all. They're not changed at all. But yet they're Christians. That's the thing that the Spirit's really ferreting out for us. There are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that aren't even saved. He's been showing us plainly stated theology in Scripture. 
And he's been showing us plain statements made by the person of the gospel himself, Jesus Christ. What he's also been pointing out is the following up here on the board. Mental gymnastics. In order to dismiss the plain words of Jesus Christ, one must concoct a system of theology that multiplies exponentially in complexity as it attempts to make things fit. But I want it to be this. But you're left with this. We'll now enter mental gymnastics because you've got to take something simple and pure and make it fit your preconceptions about God. Your desire for the gospel to be more accommodating. And though it's not in the strict sense of the Word of God. And so you have to go through these mental gymnastics. Many, many books written in error to try to prove things that actually aren't in Scripture. Why? Because man wants to dominate God. Man says, I want an emasculated Jesus. I don't want a Jesus Christ that says, I'm Lord, not just Savior. I'm the same person. You don't get to accept half of me. I'm Lord and Savior. Both. If you accept me, then you accept all of me, not part. Because one side of it is making you stumble. One side is a rock of offense. You don't get to do that with me, to me. And that's what he's saying. People do this thing with Scripture. And they play these mental gymnastics. And they dismiss the words of Jesus Christ as odd as that or grotesque as that sounds. The flip side is godliness. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Okay. 2 Corinthians 11.3. So what can I tell you from personal experiences is this, and I really need you to listen up, especially you amateur theologians out there. Bad fruit. At the end of every errant theological path is incongruity. At the end of every attempt to make the gospel, quote, fit into man's estimation of it, there exists an abyss. Trust me. I've researched these things ad nauseum. It's my job. Taking things to the end. I hear something sometimes that makes a little sense, and then I study it out, and I end up in an abyss. Unless it's truth. And the funny thing is, Scripture tells us about these things up here in the board. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but it end, its end is the way of death. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. So we are not to, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, we are not to lean on our own understanding. We don't have the right to take Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, and begin hacking up his offices even, begin dividing him up because part of him is offensive to us. Well, who's that part offensive to? Which part of you is offended by Jesus Christ as Lord? You know which one it is. 
teshuka. Sin wants to dominate you. The flesh is filled with sin. Doesn't like the idea of Jesus Christ as Lord. Therefore, as Spurgeon alluded to, those people that haven't accepted Jesus Christ for who He is, holy, aren't even saved. And their lives prove it out. What the Spirit's saying in essence is that we believers ought not play the same terribly misleading gospel trumpet that the rest of contemporary Christianity is playing. What the Word says is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 Which means that His tune never changes. So what the Spirit's been teaching this congregation is just that. Starting with ourselves even, looking in the mirror. Go to 2 Corinthians 13.5. If we're looking back just a little bit on the course of study as of late, of course it begins with us. Of course we have to look in the mirror. Does this apply to us? Could I be myself a professing Christian that is still yet unsaved? Huh. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So of course we start there with ourselves. After we are assured of our own faith against the absolute righteousness of Holy Scripture, then we can begin understanding the world that we live in. We are able to spiritually appraise things, something the natural man cannot do, so says Scripture. In other words, we have to understand what it is exactly that we have believed in the past. If we say we believe in Christ, well, which gospel was it? Was it the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, or was it a little g, an accommodating gospel? One that just said, say this little prayer right here. Which one was it? Was it just a mental ascent? Did you receive all of Christ? Or did you want to just receive a part of Him? Did you even understand? Some of you say, oh, I was saved when I was like five or six. I find that hard to believe. Why? Because you don't even understand the first thing about repentance. What are you repenting from? The lollipop you took from your sister's Easter basket? How could you possibly understand the wretchedness of man's soul? How could you possibly be convicted so that you might have repentance, actual repentance? But some people travel this life that way. Oh, I was saved a long time ago. Just look, I've got it written in my Bible right here, my dusty old Bible. It says right here on, you know, such and such a date when I was like five. I accepted Jesus into my heart as some ridiculous thing like that. We have to consult Scripture for the reassurance that we all seek regarding our own salvation. In fact, the Spirit's also warning us to beware of our own devices. Remember, the heart's desperately sick. For man is expert at justifying his own ungodliness by taking things, even biblical things, completely out of context in order to satisfy some fleshly objective. 
As I intimated on Thursday, this is the fight that many of the post-Reformation teachers fought tooth and nail against. And as we'll be closing with this morning, the so-called great reformer himself, Martin Luther, fought this good fight with the same ferocity. It's crazy the way that the gospel's been attacked similarly over the years. And I'm going to show you this. But nonetheless, there is a different gospel out there. There are multiple, to be honest. The flesh's basic tendency is to reject authority. Since the gospel includes the lordship of Jesus Christ, the flesh will reject him as Lord, but quote-unquote keep him as Savior. Since the latter portion is perceived as not requiring, you know, basic submission, the result is a divided Jesus, and therefore a perverted gospel. We don't have that right. He says, you have to accept me, and I am king. King of kings, Lord of lords. This is who I am. I'm not just some savior, some little keepsake savior that you wear around your neck, and you've hedged some bet when you were five or six years old, supposedly, and now you get a free trip to heaven. That's not submission at all. That's not what Jesus taught at all. Not even close. But see, the flesh doesn't like that at all. And they prefer a different gospel. So this whole thing has been so much of what the Spirit's been getting at. And it's a broadly sweeping issue in the churches, especially in America nowadays. Somehow the conservative folks... Now, what did we just read in Hebrews uh, Was it uh, 13, 8, I think? Jesus Christ, or 3, 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, I guess if you're going to be conservative in one area of your life, it should be with Him, right? So I'm not offended by, be, by being called a conservative Christian or conservative when it comes to the Bible. Matter of fact, I prefer that because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So somehow the conservative folks like us are now being dubbed as people who don't understand the simplicity of grace. It's the oldest trick in the book up here on the board. This is not new. Let's see if we can get it to come up. There we go. An old, effective trick. Stake a claim to something first, and the world in its laziness will accept it as authentic. Satan loves to, quote, steal godly words such as grace. Loves it. It's the oldest trick in the book. Nope, grace is mine. And this is what it looks like. The Bible says that a true believer will persist in his love for Jesus while an apostate will fall away. The Bible says that a true believer will bear fruit while an unbeliever cannot. The Bible says that God is not a liar nor a God of confusion but Satan is the father of lies. Here's the thing. Grace is so simple, so very simple, yet man in his desire to control God perverts it, even rejects it 
in favor of his own plan for salvation. Up here on the board, I'm just going to show you a little comparison. This is what scriptural grace says, and notice it's actual scripture. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew 7, 14. Today's false grace. The gate is big. Many are saved. But the way is narrow. Only a few saved will submit to the Lord. So what do you see here, my friends? Well, for starters, scriptural grace is actually taken directly from Holy Scripture. In fact, from Jesus, the Christ Messiah Himself. I didn't say that passage in Matthew 7. Jesus did. If you don't like it, if that's a stumbling block to you, that's your problem. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing His mind. He's not apologizing for the things He said. But you see, man likes to cut Him up because parts of Him are offensive to man. However, we... we cannot find Scripture to support the false grace of today. What today's average Christian will argue is actually not biblical in any sense of the word. It sounds like Scripture, but it's actually a doctrine of demons. The perverted so-called grace gospel, and I have a little G on purpose because it's not the real gospel, it's a perversion A false gospel is no different than the sleazeball who tells his girlfriend that he, quote, loves her so that he can sleep with her. That's the same thing. If she, quote, believes him, she might fall prey to his devices and be defiled. That's what a false gospel is. It's a sleazeball approach to Jesus Christ. Today's Christian evangelist, quote-unquote, tells everyone that God loves them so much that He'll forego His own integrity and save them without submitting them to Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me say that again because my wording is very important here. The so-called Christian evangelist nowadays tells everyone that God loves them so much that He'll forego His own integrity. Now listen. He'll forego his own integrity. God knows who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is one one man. He's Lord and Savior. King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen? Okay. God's not confused about this. When he set up the plan for salvation, he wasn't confused. He didn't say, well, stop and carve him up the way you'd like. He said, this is my son, my beloved son. If you accept him for who and what he is, then... I will give you saving faith. But we have evangelists out there running around telling people that God loves them so much that He'll forego His own integrity and save them without submitting them to Jesus Christ as Lord. Did you hear what I just said? Who submits a saved person to Jesus Christ? God does. That's called grace. If He can give you a Savior, do you think He would fail giving you a Lord? No. You know why? Because it's the same person. It's Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God doesn't fail. 
I read a so-called salvation tract the other day that called God a lovesick God. A lovesick God. And as you can imagine, my heart leapt with indignation for the simple reason that the very term lovesick makes God out to be a weak, sappy, emasculated God. And I won't stand for that because God won't. And all I can think about is that if I'm offended, think about that, if I'm offended, what say God? What say God Himself, whose integrity is thrown out the window? But you see up here on the board, people love an emasculated God. You notice I have a little g. Because God, the God of the universe, will not be emasculated. People love an emasculated God because they can, in their sinful natures, dominate Him. That is sin's desire. That's Teshuka. Sin's desire is crouching at the door. Sin doesn't want to give up sovereignty to another individual. That is sin's desire crouching at the door. Genesis 4-7. Sin and grace are enemies. Sinful man cannot accept all of God's grace without becoming completely dependent and subordinate to the Lord. That's the problem with people. They don't want Jesus. They want to, as Spurgeon said, pick and choose portions of grace. But you see, there are rules to grace. God says, this is my grace to give. And if I say I'm going to give you my son, if I truly save you, then I'm going to give you my son. And he's Lord and Savior. And your new creature is going to submit to him because that's how I designed it to be. Because that's how it's going to be forever and ever if you're truly saved. Let me read another expert, uh, excerpt from Charles Spurgeon on what it means to be saved and what God's grace looks like scripturally. Holiness is always present in those who are loyal guests of the great king. Remember that. I read this to you earlier up here on the board. Such men may talk what they will about justification by faith and salvation by grace, but they are rebels at heart. They have not on the wedding dress any more than the self-righteous whom they so eagerly condemn. The fact is, if we wish for the blessings of grace, we must in our hearts submit to the rules of grace without picking and choosing. You don't get to decide about God's grace. If God says, I'm going to change you this way, then guess what? If you're saved, you are changed. And when he says, since my grace just changed you completely, so much so that the Bible says you're born again, then you will bear fruit. Because I've literally changed you. But see, that's offensive when man is trying to consider, when man counts the cost of what it means to submit 
to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so what does he do? He backs out. He re-engineers God's plan for salvation and says, I'll take the Savior, but I'll leave the Lord for later. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. Up here on the board, a man who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit, to the Lord who has redeemed him, reckoning this to be his reasonable service. Again, a man who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him that. So, what the Spirit's been saying here, as we get back to the proper study of believing, is up here in the board. If you believe that God, by grace, will make you saved, then you must also believe that God, by grace, will make you subordinate to Christ. Those are the rules of salvation. That's grace. He says, do you want my son, who happens to be both Lord and Savior? Not just Savior, both Lord and Savior. So if you're going to believe that God by grace will make you saved, then you must also believe that God by grace will make you subordinate to his son. Therefore, be careful what you believe, for not all believing is the same or godly. Be careful what you believe. You do not get to decide about what God does at salvation. Let me say that again. You do not get to decide what God does at salvation. If He says, I'm going to give you my Son at salvation, then you have all of Him. And if you're the person who picked and chose and made up some little gospel, the one that was accommodating, you don't have him. You don't get to decide about what God does at salvation. Scripture must tell you, and you must accept it as truth. If Scripture exists that says God will save you through the person of Jesus Christ, and that person is both Lord and Savior then when God saves you, He makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus, who is both Lord and Savior. Man doesn't decide this. Does that make sense? If God saves you, you're getting all of Jesus Christ. That's the theology. And what Scripture says to us is if we're saved, we know we're saved because we got Him. Our new creature, all he really wants to do, or she wants to do, is subordinate to the Lord. That's part of the inward evidence for ourselves. I didn't say those things. I mean, that's what Scripture says. So be careful of what you believe. For as Calvin wrote up here on the board, the human heart has so many recesses for vanity, 
so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded by fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. That's Calvin on human beliefs as relating to true faith, saving faith. Jesus had something to say about the human heart. Go to John 2.23. John 2.23. Jesus had something to say about the human heart that Calvin was just talking about. Jesus didn't always trust it. That's simple. He didn't. Why? Because he was a wise man, obviously. So he didn't trust it. He said, yeah, yeah, you guys are saying you believed and everybody's up in arms and everybody's having an emotional thing and we'll see who's still around later on. We'll see. John 2.23 Because if my father changed you, you're changed. So we'll see who's still around. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed, that's that Greek word, pistouo, in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, Again, up here on the board, believe, pistouo, believe, have faith in, trust in, pass. I am entrusted with, in context, everyone believes something and everyone has faith in something. Whether it's godly is another issue altogether. There's a lot of people right now, if you ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, totally. I totally do. Well, what gives? Seriously, what gives? What do you mean what gives? I, I believe in Jesus Christ. I said this little prayer. Uh, someone told me I was saved. Some pastor, some guy that I don't even see, haven't seen in like two decades or whatever told me I was saved. Huh. Everybody believes something. And just because the word Jesus or Christ is in the sentence doesn't mean that they actually accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You want to do a little experiment? I wouldn't do this because it's ugly, but we could do it. I could get a little child up here right now, four, five years old, say, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to go spend the, all of eternity in a lake of fire, away from mommy and daddy maybe, burning. Do you believe? I believe. Of course they believe. They believe in what? Where's their trust? Their trust is in me, the idiot, who's telling a kid if they don't do this thing, they're not saved, they're going to go to the lake of fire. Their faith isn't even in God. It's in me. Do you understand? So there's all kinds of believing, folks. You might sell all these, you know, you might say to yourself, well, these many people here in Scripture must have been saved then, Right? But that's just you getting stuck on a phrase, many believed in his name. That's you hanging your hat, so to speak. And I believe that's a mistake that a lot of people make, to be honest, when they read the Bible. They have these little, let's call them favorite words and phrases. Let's just call it what it is. They have these little favorite words and phrases that once they see them, they automatically, though often in error, make assumptions about all passages that may share the same English translation. But it says believe. So? So? There's all kinds of believing. What's the context say? But it says right there, believe. 
But what's the context say? As the Spirit's been teaching us, that's a flawed approach. Hanging your hat on word studies and phrases and such is a flawed approach up here on the board. Word and phrase association is not a fail-proof method of interpreting Scripture. In fact, many have gone astray by assuming words and phrases always mean the same thing, regardless of context. Well, it means love over here, so it must be the same kind of love over there. It says pistis over here, it must mean pistis over there. It says pistis over there, it must mean pistis over there. Same thing. Can't we just make it, you know, so I can be lazy? I don't actually want to read my Bible. I just want to pluck stuff out that makes something accommodating for me. The Bible is chock full of instances where words like believe, faith, love, etc., all mean different things based on context. Context. Hence the Spirit's guidance from Thursday's message up here on the board. Frankly, not all believing is the same. Nowhere in the Bible does it state that all believing is godly. In fact, the Bible depicts man's heart as utterly deceitful. It says man can believe all kinds of crazy things especially concerning the gospel. And sometimes it includes the name of Jesus Christ himself, but it's not Jesus. It's a different Jesus, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, from another spirit, and it's actually another gospel. Jesus knew this, and he also taught his disciples to discern such things, remember, up here on the board. Jesus is the one who taught his disciples to look for True signs of saving faith that comes as a result of godly believing. He said, if my Father's going to change you, you will be changed. That's what he said. He didn't say, you're going to have options after. <laughs> he didn't say, it's okay to cut me up, take me as Savior now, but maybe Lord later. He said what the Bible said. He said, if you're going to have me, you're going to have all of me. You don't get to split me up and then, you know, because I'm a stumbling block to your flesh right now, especially the part about me being your master. You don't get to do that. And God would never give you him. Remember, God's the one by grace that gives you saving faith, right? So if he's going to give you grace, he's going to give you grace by his own order of things. Again, Jesus sets the stage for us. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He said, yeah, Scripture basically says, hey, maybe some were saved, maybe not. Jesus didn't trust all these people. Let's quickly review Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees now keeping our eyes on the term believing and the context the context in which it appears in each and every case go to John 8:12 John 8:12 This is why you read your bibles folks for context John 8:12 then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. 
He didn't say follows me as Savior. He said me. And who's me? What do we call him? What and what? Jesus Christ? Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you're following me. I'm Lord and Savior. Not just Savior. Both. That person will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So up here on the board it stands the reason, obviously. It matters what you believe. It matters what you believe. Jesus stated that those who believe in him, true believers, would walk in the light. John 8, 12, 1 John 1, 6-7 up here on the board. Let me read that to you. 1 John 1, 6-7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, look at verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In other words, what you believe is not true. That's what we think. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. You judge according to the flesh. Up here on the board. According to the flesh, Jesus stated the root of the Pharisees' belief. The flesh. They certainly believed something. They fought tooth and nail all the time. With Jesus Christ, they believed something. Yeah, they believed in, in uh, salvation by works. They thought if they did enough things good, that that's what would be pleasing to God. When it was always the Messiah, the whole law was just meant to say, that, I'm a schoolmaster. You'll never measure up to my perfect standard. So give it up and accept the Messiah. So if you still think somewhere in the recesses of your soul that you have to be good enough to get into heaven, you have been completely deceived. The flesh cannot be godly, 1 Corinthians 2.14, because they are spiritually appraised things, godly things. In fact, it cannot even appraise its own depravity. It doesn't suppose it's actually depraved even. Huh. The Pharisees believed that eternal life was had in simply knowing Scripture. That was, in brief, their work for salvation. Jesus Got all over that. It says, you search the Scriptures in John 5.39 up here on the board. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Again, what was the problem? Verse 15 says it plainly. You judge according to the flesh. That was their problem. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. Look at verse 19. This probably didn't go over so well. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Up here on the board. The Pharisees believed. The Pharisees certainly believed in something. And it was based on the same word, the same law, that Jesus based his personal belief on. While the vehicle for true faith, the word, was the same, not all were, quote, on the train towards salvation. Verse 23. 
And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, the Messiah, you will die in your sins. Up here on the board. Unless you believe, that's that same Greek word, that I am He. Jesus made the absolute distinction that belief must be in His person, that I am He. He wasn't refuting knowledge of Scripture. He was explaining the chasm between knowing of Him and actually knowing Him. There's a lot of Christians that say they know of Jesus, but they don't actually know Him. Here's the extra-large principle the Spirit's been reiterating up here on the board. The concept of believing in the Bible. Just because the word believe or its derivatives shows up in Scripture does not mean all believing is the same. To the contrary, Scripture contextualizes different beliefs, of which two categories arise, belief in Jesus Christ or some other belief, which is really unbelief in Him. Maybe just the facts of His offices only. Oh, I believe Jesus was a good man. I believe He was a good teacher and, you know, moral guy. And, hey, if He wants to be my Savior, sure, I believe He's my Savior. But that's not... Jesus Christ, the way God the Father presented him, said, in him I'm well pleased, right? Everything about him I love, I adore. He's Lord and Savior. You accept him, I'll give you saving faith. But if you just want bits and pieces of him, no, I'm not going to do it. So says Scripture, and I'm going to prove it to you because you're not going to have any real fruit. John 8.30, he spoke the, or as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Again, as a friendly reminder up here on the board, flawed interpretation, word and phrase association is not a fail-proof method of interpreting Scripture. In fact, many have gone astray by assuming words and phrases always mean the same thing, regardless of context. In other words, just because believe in Him occurs here in the English translation, let us not hang our hats on the phrase, that's the lazy man's approach, but rather on the context of it. John 8.30 and forward. The greater context of Jesus Christ's own thoughts about the heart of man regarding His ability to believe, John 2.23-24, implies that we must press on in this passage for additional, qualifying, clarifying context. Look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews, what did He say who had believed Him? Okay, so you believe me, right? You believe me now? Yeah, we believe you. Well, what about believing me? How do you know you're actually a disciple of mine? What about believing me? If Jesus Christ was right here and he said to a demon, I am the Son of God, the demon would go, I know. I know. You know the scripture. They shudder. I know. If you look at the demons when they respond to him, when he's going to cast them out of people, what do we have with you? I know who you are, Holy One. The demons knew. 
They knew the facts about him, but guess where they're going? The lake of fire. Why? They wouldn't accept him as Savior. They rejected Jesus Christ. It's the same thing with a professing Christian. They go to church, but they reject Jesus Christ. Maybe they want a Savior. Maybe they really don't. Maybe they're just playing. I don't know. Maybe they want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. They don't want all of Jesus. They want a little Jesus. They want an emasculated Jesus, a weak little guy. So Jesus said, all right, so you say you believe me? You believe me? That's what Jesus said, right? He said, he's saying to these Jews who had believed him. Okay, so you believe me, right? Yeah. All right. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In other words, there's going to be evidence of your so-called belief. Because even demons will agree with me on the facts of who I am. <laughs> but they're not saved. There are apostates that used to believe in the words of Jesus Christ, but they're not saved. So there's got to be a little bit more, and that's what and that's where evidence comes in. And we shouldn't shy away from evidence. That's not anti-grace or works or anything. If anything, it's a show of grace. Didn't I just explain that? If God says, I'm going to change you, and you're going to produce fruit, then guess what happens? He's going to change you, and you're going to produce fruit. Does that not sound like grace to you? Does that not sound like grace to you? Because you couldn't produce that fruit before, but now all of a sudden you can. Does that not sound exactly like God's grace? does to me, but yet a lot of people take offense with that. Oh no, I get to choose. Really? Really? We know you have a sinful flesh and you're going to be tempted away from it, but your changed heart only wants to obey, only wants to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if that hasn't happened, my friends, you have a problem. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse 31. You say you believe me? Okay, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will even make you free. Why are so many Christians in utter bondage nowadays? Because they're not free. They were told there's, you know, this giant gate. Jesus loves you, this you know. Say this little prayer with me. Yay! Yay, some of them are lied to in prep schools. Oh, you're totally saved. I know you're only one. Gaga. I know you're only one. Here, here's a rattle. It says Jesus on it. It's got John 3.16 on the side. Let me go dip you in a tank. I'll baptize you. That's good. Because that made all the sense in the world. Because that's what Scripture says to do. This is the idiocy of the average Christian Verse 31 again, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Up here on the board. Evidence, freedom through persistence. Jesus stated that a true believer in Christ would continue in his word and be set free. Okay, unless Jesus is a liar, then I guess we have to take plainly stated scripture. Amen? Did he not say that? Why is everybody so quiet? People have loved ones you're thinking about right now? Maybe. Good. Be convicted. And then go take the true gospel to them and convict their socks off. And say, is he really your Lord and Savior? Or are you just hedging a bet with me? My son, my daughter, my loved ones. 
What do you think he is to you? Is he a tool to you? He's just some, some other rag you can use up? That's not Jesus. That's a little Jesus, a little emasculated one. Please, please, my father is lovesick. He's lovesick. Just please let me beg you. Does that sound like Jesus? Where in the Bible did Jesus ever beg anyone? He said, listen, here I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Here I am. Did he love? Of course. Father, forgive him. They don't even know what they're doing. Of course he loved. He had love like you can't even imagine. You say you loved your loved ones? Why you give them a false gospel then? That's not love. How's that love? Oh, but it's so accommodating. I want my kids to like me as a friend. I want them to love me. What's more important, them loving you or them having the true gospel? Honestly, what's more important? Why is it so silent here? Because, thank you, DJ. One person gets it. What's more important? Come on, people. Seriously, what's more important? Thank you. Why is that so hard? Because I love them. Yeah, join the crowd. You don't think I have relatives or loved ones that, are, as far as I know, are totally unsaved? Denounce Christ? But we are not to emasculate the Lord. Just think about that. He's the king. We don't get to shrink him down into something that's, you know, palatable. Oh, look at him. He's on, look at him. He's got a little necklace and he's still on the cross. He's still there. Look how little he is. We don't get to do that. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. What are we doing? God's not lovesick. Incredible. Look at verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Those are guarantees in the word of God. If you're saved, that's what you get. You will persist. You will be set free. As the scene continues, it's obvious that the Pharisees are fighting for some Something that they truly believe in, that's obvious. Yet, as Jesus describes it, they do not bear any good fruit. Verse 39. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, Great! If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Up here on the board. What the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ. Didn't know him by name. Hadn't been born yet. He was still the Messiah to come. The Messiah of the Old Testament, John 5.39-8.56, and therefore He did good deeds as fruit of God-given faith. Go to Romans 4.3. Romans 4.3. This, this is the thing they didn't understand. I like what Paul says too. He says, hey, listen. Abraham didn't even, wasn't even given the law. The law was given to Moses. Abraham was before Moses, but he was Jewish. He's the so-called father of Jews. So if salvation came through works according to the law, what about Abraham? He didn't even have it. Duh. That even makes sense. You guys don't even pay attention to your own doctrines. That's what he was saying. <laughs> Romans 3, 4.3, I mean... For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, which is a godly faith in context here, is credited as righteousness. No ungodly faith could ever be credited as righteousness. And that's a situation where, obviously, in verse 5, pistouo results in true saving faith, which results in righteousness. That's how you know. Back to John 8.39. John 8:39 It's very simple. So they get, you know, they're bickering back and forth with Jesus. This is the scene. Well, Abraham was our father then. They're basically saying, "Who are you?" He's like, "Well, verse 39, they answered and said to him, "Abraham is our father." And Jesus said to them, "If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham." Again, up here on the board, then do what Abraham did. Up here on the board, John 8.56 read, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You guys are trying to kill me. Your so-called father, although he said, your father is the devil, but your so-called father was waiting, was rejoicing to see my day. You're trying to kill me. What does that say about you people? Verse 43 Verse 43, why do, I'm going quickly, these are review. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Up here on the board. Believing implies hearing. Matthew 13, 9. He who has ears, let him hear. It's impossible to believe something that results in godly faith if you can't first hear it. The Pharisees weren't hearing this, were they? There's the Messiah, the Lord and Savior, of the scripture that they cling to, right front and center, and they're not hearing it. They're not hearing it. Verse 45, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 47, He who is of, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. It's that simple. To our previous point up here on the board, not all believing is the same. Nowhere in the Bible does it state that all believing is godly. In fact, the Bible depicts man's heart as utterly deceitful. You know, in the Bible there's a, a concept of a hardened heart, you know, like Pharaoh. And at that juncture, God made that individual's heart so hardened that it was impenetrable. They could hear everything, but it was so hardened that was it. They couldn't, they couldn't hear their eardrums vibrate, but they don't want to hear it. You know that? It's like, put the hand up. I don't want to hear it. Nope. I don't want to hear it. I remember Scott and I went to the beach. Remember that day? 100 people we talked to, I think we counted. And so many of them, of one particular religion nonetheless, nope, not hearing it. But, but aren't we supposed to have, if you're really a Christian, don't you want fellowship with other Christians? Don't you at least want to be cordial fellowship? Nope. I already have my religion. Thank you very much. See you later. Incredible. Okay, now we turn our attention to the parable of parables. Go to Luke 8.11. Luke 8.11. Remember the, the context of our lesson is the so-called difficult passages, believing. What does the Word of God have to say about believing? One of these parables, the way it's recorded, uses the word believing but we have to take the greater context of 
verbal plenary scripture to figure it out. What kind of believing is actually in view? Because we know there's all kinds of sorts in the Bible. Luke 8.11, now the parable is this, the seed of the word of God, oh, excuse me, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. That's what we might dub category one of Jesus' parable. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So you see a temporary belief here. Here's Matthew's version of the second category called the rocky soil up here on the board for the sake of thoroughness. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's not persistence, in other words. Look at Mark, go to, uh, hold your thumb there, go to Mark 4.14, Mark 4.14. Because there's three places in the so-called synoptic Gospels that this parable of parables shows up. Mark 4.14. So the sticky spot. I believe for some people historically has been the idea that Luke wrote the word believe, but we know that believing is not always the same. Mark 4.14, the sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown and they hear. Immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. You see a different connotation even for hearing there, right? These people hear it, but it doesn't stick. So not all hearing is the same either. That's why context counts. We haven't even talked about the context of the audience. We did previously, but anyways, verse 16, in a similar way. In other words, category two is the same result, in other words, as category one. These are the ones on whom seed was sown in the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Up here on the board, just to drive that point home, the connective tissue between verse 15 and 16, category one and category two, is in a similar way. Jesus implies that the second class of people fall into the same category as the first, namely, unconverted unbelievers, even though for a time they, quote, believe for a while, as Luke described it. Look at verse 17. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, no persistence. Only temporary. Yet Jesus Christ said, if you persevere, you're mine. If you keep my word, you're mine. If God says, by grace, I'm going to save you, then you will persist. If part of that saving grace is that you are now under, knowingly, the lordship of Jesus Christ, then you will submit to him and not denounce them at some later time, by word or deed even. In other words, as Mark wrote, is the same as the other writers, there's no persistence, there's no perseverance in this category of individual. Again, since we are focusing on 
quote, difficult passages, we are focused on the second category of person in Jesus' parable of the soils. All right, go back to Luke 8.13 now. Luke 8.13. Those on the rocky soils are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. In other words, no persistence means no saving faith. Verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to completion. In other words, it starts looking maybe a little bit like fruit, but it never makes it there. Up here on the board, on the parable of the soils, what Scripture tells us is that if a person has true faith as a result of godly belief in Jesus Christ, they will bear evidence of that result. That's what grace means. If God says, I'm going to change you, guess what? A changed person does the same thing as before or different things. Okay, a changed person does the same thing as before or different things. Thank you. Yay. Then why is everybody got a problem with that? Seriously, if God says he's going to change you and you're going to be born again, it's not a revamp of the old one. It's brand new, the same one that's going to travel with you for all of eternity. What makes you think that thing can do, you know, a good tree can only bear good fruit, so says Jesus. What makes you think that thing could ever do anything but bear good fruit? And not almost there, almost looking like it, no, all the way there, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what scripture says. Why does everybody have a problem with that though? Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? They want a different gospel. It leads to a different spiritual life where man is still in control. Where man gets to decide, after he's saved, I get to decide if you're Lord of me or not. If you're still thinking that way, then you have a problem. Because then God's a liar to you. Because the new creature can only bear fruit after its own kind. That's true grace. In other words, again, what Scripture tells us is that if a person has true faith as a result of godly belief in Jesus Christ, they will bear evidence of that result 30, 60, 100-fold, Luke 8, 14. In other words, they will persist in doing good. That does not mean that all of a sudden you're a goody two-shoes and you never sin again. We know that's not biblical at all because you still have a body of death that tempts the heck out of you and you fail. To put this into the greater context of this morning's lesson, consider how the Spirit began our lesson on grace up here on the board. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, if you believe that God by grace will make you saved, then you must also believe that God by grace will make you subordinate to Christ. Therefore, be careful what you believe, for not all believing is the same or godly. In fact, Jesus states in his parable here that those who are saved will bear good fruit. Guess what? You ready for this one? With perseverance. With perseverance. Theologically speaking, the person who produces something for a while and then completely drifts away and never comes back and God never plucks them back or takes them out as the sin unto the death, that person may have a serious problem. Why? Because that's evidence of not persevering. 
Look at verse 15. I didn't say this. Scripture said this. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with what? Perseverance. Who said that? Jesus Christ. I didn't say that. That's Jesus Christ. It's not temporary. We also see here in the mix the concept we learned earlier regarding a person's ability to hear up here on the board. Matthew 13, 9. He who has ears, let him hear. It's impossible to believe something that results in godly faith if you can't first hear it. Again, verse 15, before we press on. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Jesus goes on yet again to speak about the true believer, the good soil that bears fruit with perseverance. Matthew and Mark write about it slightly differently, but the conclusion is the same, of course. Up here on the board, Matthew 13, 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Mark writes it this way, and those are, the, those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Again, Luke writes about it slightly different, and he uses with perseverance. He then writes about Jesus expounding upon the concept of the persevering saint in his next parable. But the context isn't lost. There's no change indicated of audience even. So what's he really trying to drive home? What did he say? I came to seek into what? All right. So what's he driving home here? This is about salvation, my friends. Look at verse 16. Now, he says, what about this perseverance? What about this good, good soil that's going to believe in me and bear fruit? Well, no one after, putting, uh, after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or pit puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. In other words, if you have the light, you're going to show it. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In other words, a true believer is someone whose light will shine. Now, it may be dimmed out or clouded over by temptations, these kinds of things. But this is the words of Jesus Christ. He says, if you have the light, which is the, life of, of the light of men, then you will shine and you will have a problem putting it on display. As a matter of fact, you're going to know, you'll be convicted by God the Holy Spirit, that that's the very best part of you. That's who you are now. That's who you're going to be in heaven forever and ever. This thing becomes disgusting, despicable. The sin itself, this is why the word repentance, repentance is just, oh, I changed my mind. It's, ugh! That's repentance. Ugh! That is ugly to me. That's true repentance. That's all the reaction you would expect from a perfectly made new creature. Amen? Oh, well, I kind of like it. No, that thing hates sin. Hates it. Is repulsed by it. If, you're not, if that's not you, what would you like me to say? If that's not your loved ones, what would you like me to say? 
That's what Scripture says. And like I said, Jesus wasn't some little scrawny, emasculated dude. Jesus Christ was the man. We all talk about the man. Oh, the rock, he's such the man. I think the rock might be a Christian, by the way. At least he says he is. But anyways, that's nothing to do with physical prowess. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Anyways, I don't want to digress. We're already running long. I told you, though, we're almost done. How are you guys making out? A true believer is someone whose light will shine. And not, ready? Not just for a time. Not temporarily. But with perseverance. So not just for a time. Evidence will show that it will shine forevermore. And so Jesus closes with a warning to those who might believe they possess saving faith, yet they do not even hear. Look at verse 18. So, what does he say? This is the undertone from this morning's message. Take care how you listen. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he thinks, dokeo in the Greek, to think, suppose, or seem, even what he supposes he has, shall be taken away from him. Do you not think that the Pharisees, who says things like, Lord, Lord, didn't we X, Y, Z in your name? In your name? But I never knew you. You supposed wrong, my friends. Why? Because they were arrogant. It was never about Jesus Christ. It was about controlling God. That's what arrogance does. That's what sin does. It wants to literally dominate. That's what Tashuka means. Wants to be master over you. Over God, even. That's sin. Sin is that wretched. Now, what do you think about the new creature? You think the new creature is going to look at that thing and go, oh, that's cool. No, the new creature is like, get off of me. Get off of me. You know, when your flesh is like, you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Your flesh is like tempting you and it's got all kinds of like lustful patterns and these kinds of things. Your flesh is like, yeah, let's do this. Let's go over here. Let's, let's get bombed and, you know, go pick up some chicks. Let's go do this over here. Let me go, right? And, you, and the new self is like, you're gross. For real. What do you think Paul was saying in Romans 7? Read it today. He's like, here I am, and then I get this gross roommate. So gross. It's so gross. It's so gross and so manipulating and so domineering that it actually proposes, let me use the word doketo, supposes that it can not only do all kinds of crazy things against God, but it can do just enough to get to heaven. How arrogant is that? This flesh is grotesque. It says, not only am I going to live like hell, to hell with Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm just going to do just enough. See, because I've been keeping tallies, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to keep tallies. This is how much good I did today, and this is how much bad. And as long as most of my days are this way, even if it's really close, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to go to St. Peter, and we're going to have a little discussion. You know, like all the stupid, stupid songs? Jackass songs, right? Say, oh, St. Peter, I was listening to a country song, I'm like, dude, you're so lost. 
He's like, I don't know what I believe, but I believe when I see Peter, he's going to let me in. What? I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not how it works, you bozo. But that's what people believe. As long as I'm a little better than I was, you know, or that guy, like the Pharisee, as long as I'm not like that dude who's ripping his shirt off, begging for mercy. Take care what you listen to. Take care that you don't, in the end, lose everything. Hmm. I'm just going to close. Go ahead and close your Bibles. Just sit back, relax. I'm just going to close, as promised, with the tremendously telling words of the great reformer himself, Martin Luther. Okay, Now, this guy lived way back in 1348, or 1448, I believe, to 1546. 1448 to 1546. Now, that's like what? Almost like 500 years ago. Okay? This is long before any of the so-called contemporary dispensationalism comes out, contemporary grace gospel is out and about, contemporary weakened, watered-down gospel that we know today, all of before, this is way before any of the stuff that I would say we can rightly say, at least from the context of our own lives, are the later times that Paul wrote about. Before any of that came about, Martin Luther took a stand. It's interesting, because here's what I've learned. 500 years ago, this man, the great reformer himself, was fighting the same battle I'm fighting for you right now. The same one. Guess what it involves? The gospel. Grace. Let me just read, and you see what you hear from the great reformer himself. A man that predates a lot of what you, a lot of you folks have studied even in the past. By hundreds of years. Up here on the board. 1483 to 1546. True faith of which we speak cannot be manufactured by our own thoughts. Now, I'm going to tell you this. God, God's honest truth. You're going to hear stuff in here? You're going to be like, are you plagiarizing Luther? I've been accused of this multiple times. Did you plagiarize Francis Chan? Nope. Never read the book, my friend. Did you, did, did you listen to this Paul Washer guy before? T- nope. Never even heard him before. Did, did, stop it. Between me and a lamppost, not that it matters, I do very, very little commentary reading anymore at all. Why? Because I trust in Scripture and I trust in God the Holy Spirit to guide me correctly in Scripture. Anyways, with that said, doesn't mean I cannot appreciate and cannot teach you what was going on 500 years ago. As Solomon said, nothing new under the sun, right? Okay, so listen up. True faith of which we speak cannot be manufactured by our own thoughts, for it is solely a work of God in us without any assistance on our part. 
As Paul says to the Romans, it is God's gift and grace obtained by one man, Christ. Therefore, faith is something very powerful, active, restless, effective, which at once renews a person and again regenerates him and leads him altogether into a new manner and character of life, so that it is impossible not to do good without ceasing. For just as natural as it is for the tree to produce fruit, so natural is it, is it for faith to produce good works. And just as it is quite unnecessary to command the tree to bear fruit, so there is no command given to the believers, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, nor is urging necessary for him to do good, for he does it of himself, freely and unconstrained, just as he of himself, without command, sleeps, eats, drinks, puts on his clothes, hears, speaks, goes, and comes. Up here on the board. Whoever has not this faith talks but vainly about faith and works and does not himself know what he says or whither it tends. He has not received it. He juggles with lies and applies the scriptures where they speak of faith and works to his own dreams and false thoughts, which is purely a human work. Whereas the scriptures attribute both faith and good works not to ourselves, but to God alone. Up here on the board. Is not this a perverted and blind people? 500 years ago. They teach we cannot do a good deed of ourselves, and then in their presumption, go to work and arrogate to themselves the highest of all the works of God, namely faith to manufacture it themselves out of their own perverted thoughts. Wherefore, I have said that we should despair of ourselves and pray to God for faith, as the apostles did in Luke 17.5. When we have faith, we need nothing more, for it brings with it the Holy Spirit, who then teaches us not only all things, but also establishes us firmly in it and leads us through death and hell to heaven. Now observe, we have given these answers that the scriptures have such passages concerning works on account of such dreamers and self-invented faith. Not that man should become good by works, but that man should thereby prove and see the difference between false and true faith. For wherever faith is right, it does good. If it does no good, it is then certainly a dream and a false idea of faith. So, just as the fruit on the tree does not make the tree good, but nevertheless outwardly proves and testifies that the tree is good, as Christ says, by their fruits ye shall know them. Thus we should also learn to know faith by its fruits. This is Martin Luther, folks. God gives no one, up here on the board, God gives no one his grace that it may remain inactive and accomplish nothing good, 
but in order that it may bear interest and by being publicly known and proved externally, draw everyone to God. As Christ says, quote, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5:16. And then the last point. This is what James means when he says in his epistle, quote, faith without works is dead. Verse 2:26. That is, as the works do not follow, it is a sure sign that there is no faith there, but only an empty thought and dream, which they falsely call faith. Inasmuch as works naturally follow faith, as I said, it is not necessary to command them, for it is impossible for faith not to do them without being commanded, in order that we may learn to distinguish the false from the true faith. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us a moment of peace and quiet in a building built to your glory. Father, we pray for deliverance that we realize each and every moment of each and every day how wretched we are in our fleshly natures. As your apostles said, who will set us free from these bodies of death? May we continue to press on, Father, in the face of increasing adversity, not just for the sake of ourselves, but even more so for the sake of others, especially the deceived. We pray, Father, for strength and encouragement in this endeavor. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.